Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Everybody, go ahead and grab a seat. It's wonderful to be with you, Calamunda Church, New Spring Church, New Spring Calamunda, Calamunda New Spring, New Calamunda Spring. I don't know, what do we call you, right? <laughs> it's so good to be together, and uh, it's a pleasure and a privilege to have opportunity again uh, to share the Word of God with you. I hope that you've all had a wonderful Christmas, and uh, I'm believing with you that uh, as you get ready to cross over into 2021, that you are going to cross over into your best year yet, and uh, trusting that God is going to do some wonderful and, and powerful things through you. Um, I just want to wholeheartedly affirm uh, what Dave was saying earlier about the fact that God very often, you know, doesn't move immediately or expectedly, but He often moves suddenly and surprisingly. And provided that you are not prescriptive about what He does and how He does it and through whom He does it, God will do what He needs to do. He will fulfill His promise. He will serve His purpose in your life if you open to the unexpected and surprising ways in which He often chooses to do it, right? And I believe with all of my heart that God has got great things in store for all of us in the year that lies ahead. We just have to stay open to the unusual way in which God often chooses to work. So, believing with you for great things. And uh, before I dive into the message today, I, I wanted to take a moment just to, uh, just to commend you. Not that my commendation is worth much, but sincerely to commend you for your faithfulness and for your perseverance and for your endurance through this incredibly unusual year. Um, I just think it is remarkable. The fact that you are here, that you are here with your faith intact, and your commitment and your love for one another intact, that in itself is remarkable, and I want to commend you for it, and I want to commend uh, your leaders and your elders uh, within both faith communities for the courageous way in which you have led uh, these churches through this tumultuous year that is 2020. Um, your courage, your faithfulness to your calling is exemplary, and I want to honor my good friend Dave for his courageous leadership in this season as well. Absolutely. Put your hands together. And show your love and appreciation for him, man. I, I, know, I know the seat that he sits in. I know the hat that he wears. I know the battles he has to fight and the personal and private pain he has to endure in order to serve in, in the way that God has called him to serve. But he does it with such grace and with such humility. And honestly, I, I know a lot of pastors and a lot of leaders in the city, but very few have the, the love for the church in this city that this man has. Um, he speaks about you so highly all the time. He's constantly bragging about you behind your back. He loves you so much, right? He loves you so much, and he serves you so faithfully. So I want to encourage you to look after uh, him and his beautiful family. Um, take good care of them because they are worth their weight in gold. Uh, they are a gift from God to you and to the city, and I honor you, my friend. You are a wonderful leader, and I'm, I'm so, so glad to call you friend. Amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, back when I was uh, in high school, um, I played rugby, uh, not, not because I wanted to or because I was particularly good at it, but because in South Africa, rugby is like a national religion, right? It's right up there with like military service after school and, and faith and devotion. So if you are male and you have two working legs and at least one working arm, you're expected to play rugby, okay? So I played rugby all through high school, but by year 12, I'd figured out it probably was not the game for me. Because I was six foot three, I weighed 67 kilograms, I was so skinny, I had one stripe on my pajamas, and I had to run around in the shower to get wet, okay? So rugby was not the ideal game for me. 
But I played all the way through to year 12, as was expected. And in our year 12 group, we had four teams, right? Every school was required to field multiple teams to make up the numbers in the league. And so we had four teams. So we had the first team, which was like the best of the best, you know, the elite, uh, the guys who loved the game, played it the best, trained the hardest. And, uh, and so that was the first team. And then we had the second team, which was made up of guys who, who loved the game, who probably wanted to be in the first team, but just weren't quite skilled enough or strong enough to make it to the first team level. But they were good. And then we had the third team, which was like, you know, all the average Joes. And then we had the fourth team. And the fourth team was really just there to make up the numbers, right? Just to make sure we could field enough teams for the league. And so I played in the fourth team, right? And to be honest with you, it was a joke, man. Like, we never trained. We never had practice. Like, uh, in fact, on match days, uh, which was always in the afternoon after school on a Wednesday or a Thursday, on match days, uh, the, the teacher who was our coach would write up the positions on his blackboard. This was back in the day when we had blackboards and chalk. He would write up the positions on the board, and then during the first recess, we would just wander down to his class and just put our name next to a position. And it was like first come, first serve. If you wanted to play wing, you just write your name next to wing. It didn't matter whether you knew what you were doing or if you had ever played that position before. It just put the names in. And, and so guys didn't even have their own kit. Guys would borrow jumpers and borrow socks from other players, sometimes after those players had just played a game. <laughs> no, it was feral, man. It was awful. And so needless to say, we didn't win many games, um, but we did win most of our fights, all right? And almost every game ended up in a fight because we would do things like we would put deep heat on our fingers so that when we went into the scrums and the rucks and the moors, we'd stick our fingers into the eyes of the, <laughs> the opposition. And if you've ever had deep heat anywhere near your eyes, you know it is awful, man. So they would cry, and then there would be a punch-up, and anyway. So that was, that was fourth-team rugby. And, and I discovered through my experience of rugby that, that those who take the game seriously approach the game differently. Right? Those who take the game seriously approach the game differently. And I've discovered that when it comes to the life of faith, it is the same. When it comes to following Jesus and, and serving the call of God on your life and pursuing the plan and purpose that God has for your life, those who take it seriously approach it differently. And when we turn to our New Testament and we open up the writings of the New Testament authors, we find that all over the pages of Scripture, there are sporting analogies and metaphors that these New Testament authors use to try and give us some sense of what the faith life is supposed to be like. And the reason why the New Testament authors loved these sporting analogies so much is because their world was as sport crazy as our world. The, the ancient Near Eastern Mediterranean basin was as mad about sport as you and I are. And so the New Testament authors used to take these sporting images and metaphors in order to try and communicate some essence or some truth about the nature of the faith life. And so one of my favorite sporting metaphors is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. And if you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard this referenced a few times. But it says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So here the writer to the Hebrews is, is comparing the Christian life and the journey of faith to a race. 
to a long distance race, to an ultra marathon, and he's exhorting us and encouraging us to run well and to finish strong. And in these few short verses, in the opening chapter of uh, opening verses of chapter twelve, he provides us with some profound and yet intensely practical insight into how to do that well. And it's these truths that I want to share with you this morning. And so the first thing that the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging us to do is to get rid of the excess baggage. To get rid of the excess baggage. So he says in verse 1, let us strip off every weight that slows us down and the sin that so easily trips us up. Now I remember when I was growing up in South Africa, there was every year a world famous ultra marathon called the Comrades Marathon. And it is a race that is uh, over 90 kilometers long. And it happens every year in the middle of June, and it's run between the cities of Durban and Peter Maritzburg. And every year, around 15 to 20,000 people line up on the starting line, and they uh, run this race ac- across the course of the day, and they have 12 hours in which to complete the race. So the starter's pistol goes off 5 o'clock in the morning, They run for 12 hours, and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they close off the finish line. Everyone who crosses in under 12 hours gets a medal and a certificate and a pat on the back. And everyone who doesn't is, well, tough luck, come back next year. And so I remember we would get up every Comrades Marathon morning, like early 5 o'clock. It would be like the equivalent of the Boxing Day test here in Australia. And, um, and we would watch the start of the race. 5 o'clock, people would, would take off, and it would, be, it would be quite a spectacle. And then we would leave the TV on. And we'd go about our day, and we'd come back every now and again and check in on how the race was going. And then at about quarter to, quarter to five, 15 minutes before the end of the race, we would all converge again on the living room. And, and we'd all be glued to the television from our armchairs, because that's how we like to participate in races, right? <laughs> I don't run for any reason, right? So I sit in the armchair and watch the end of the race. And of course, as, as the clock counted down to that 12-hour mark, the, 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 the drama and the, and, the, and the tension just rose because you had these runners who had been running for like 11 hours and 50 minutes who were now in the stadium completing the last few hundred meters of the race. And, and some of them were literally dragging themselves to the finish line. They were cramping and falling over and vomiting. And, and people would, would come alongside runners who were like fallen by the wayside and pick them up and literally carry them to the finish line and throw them over the finish line to try and get people across within the 12-hour mark. And of course, inevitably, there was always one last person to finish and receive a medal and the first person not to finish. And every year they would interview both on TV. <laughs> I don't know why they did that. I thought that was pretty cool. But the guy who was the last to cross the line and win the medal and the person who was first not to finish, they would interview them both. And it was high drama, man, and it was intense. But I remember every single year, without fail, when, when the when the people lined up on the starting line, there were people there that you could see had no intention whatsoever of either completing the race or, or attempting to win the race. And you could tell that by what they were wearing. And, and you've seen this now the world over. Whenever there's a significant marathon or ultra marathon being run, there are people who clearly have no intention of winning the race and, and no desire to complete the race. And you can tell by what they're wearing because they're running in tuxedos and scuba gear and wedding dresses and sumo outfits, kind of like the people that you'll see on screen in a moment, right? Clearly, these people have no desire whatsoever to run the race and finish, let alone win the race, okay? And, and by contrast, the people who are serious, okay, about the race 
are, are the people who wear the lightest gear possible. They have like featherweight shoes that, that weigh next to nothing. And they have tiny little parachute material shorts, right? Not like these clowns that, that, that look about three sizes too small. And they have these tiny little vests because they want to run fast and they want to run far. And they know in order to do that, you have to run light. And in fact, back in the ancient world, when people competed in athletic events, they would compete naked. Right? Back in the ancient world, all athletes were male, and they all competed naked. Thank God those days are over, right? <laughs> but that's probably what the writer to the Hebrews had in mind when he's telling us to cast aside all the weights and the sins that so easily slow us down. And so you'll notice that the writer to the Hebrews makes a distinction there, right? He says, you need to first of all cast off the sins that so easily trip you up. And, and sins, by simple definition, are just those things we allow into our lives, those habits, those behaviors, those thought patterns, those speech patterns that are clearly in contravention of the revealed will of God. Whenever God makes His will known to us in a clear and unambiguous way, and we choose to live contrary to the flow of that, then we're, we're simply living in sin, living in a way that is rebelling against the will of God. If you want a basic, simple, working definition of sin, it's rebellion. It's rebellion against what you know to be the will of God. And it can be really small and seemingly insignificant or it can be really significant and substantial. Like it could be like lying to your spouse, uh, cheating on your tax return, stealing from your boss, um, you know, refusing to forgive somebody who's asking you for forgiveness. All of these things just simply represents rebellions against God. And, and so they are sins that will slow you down and trip you up. And so trying to do the faith life with, with unacknowledged and undealt with sin in your life, it's like trying to run with your shoelaces tied. It is going to slow you down and trip you up every single time. I remember as kids, we used to do these races at school where they'd pair you up with someone, and you had to stand next to each other and put your arm around each other. They called it a three-legged race. And then you'd, you would put your right foot next to their left foot, and they would tie the shoelaces together. And then you're supposed to run, right? And you've got to kind of like try and synchronize and whatever. And inevitably, you'll fall over. Right? Because that's what, that's what running this faith life is like when you are paired up with sin, when you are paired up with pride or with rebellion or with selfishness. It is inevitably going to slow you down and trip you up. And so every single one of us have to take moments, moments like this, significant moments, holy moments, sacred moments, when we come before the presence of God and we just simply pause and we courageously pray those words that David prayed in Psalm 139. And we say, God, search me. Search me, God, and, 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 and show me my own heart. And reveal to me if there's anything in me that is displeasing to you. Is there anything in me that represents rebellion against your will? Is there anything I've picked up maybe in this year or maybe beyond this year that represents a, 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 a violation of your will and your plan and your purpose for my life? Have I, have I allowed a habit into my life or a pattern of thinking or a way of being or, or a habit of speech that is displeasing to you and it is slowing me down and tripping me up? And you know what? Whenever you do that, God in His love and His mercy and His kindness shines the searchlight of His truth into our hearts and He reveals those things and He puts His finger on things, not to judge us, not to condemn us, right, but to liberate us. And so when you pray that prayer, God will be faithful to reveal what it is in your life that He wants to deal with. And when He highlights it and He brings it to mind, then what we need to do is respond by dealing with it. And the Bible is very clear about how we deal with sin. We speak it out. Right? We speak it out. In, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 to 9, 
it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to be willing to confess it. Somebody once said, sin only has one doorway out of your life, and that is through your mouth. Right? We confess it. That's why in James 5 verse 16, James said, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Right? Whenever there is sin inside of your life, something that represents a violation of what you know to be the will of God, you know what you need to do? You need to get before God and acknowledge it and confess it, but then you need to go to someone you love and someone you trust and someone you know loves you and trusts you, and you need to sit down there and say, listen, God has convicted me about this thing and brought it, brought it to light in me. I need to bring it out into the open, and I need to confess it to you, and I need you to pray with me and believe with me because it's only in the secrecy that the power of sin continues to have a hold of you. But the moment you bring it out into the light and expose it for what it is, the power is broken, and you experience liberty. And I know that takes courage, but this is the kingdom way. And it's the path to freedom and liberty. And if you want to run well and finish strong, you've got to be willing to deal with the sin that so easily trips you up, right? And, and, and so uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, cast off all the sins that so easily slow you down and trip you up. And he says, cast off all the weights. And, and, and weights are, are, are different from sins. You see, weights and sins will both keep you from running well and finishing strong, but they're not one and the same thing, right? Because weights are those things that are not necessarily sinful, but they will nevertheless keep you from running well and finishing strong. So, so it could be something like uh, maybe regret. How many of you know regret is not a sin? It's not sinful to be regretful. And very often when we make mistakes and do things wrong and, and uh, say things we wish we hadn't said and do things we wish we hadn't done, we feel regret. And, and regret keeps you circling endlessly around what could have been and should have been. And you spend endless amounts of mental energy and emotional energy thinking about what could have happened and should have happened but didn't happen. And what it does is it keeps you from moving forward relationally and spiritually and mentally and emotionally. Listen, can I tell you something? Do not waste the energy and creativity of imagination on regret. There are so many people who take the energy and creativity of the imagination and they waste it on what could have been and should have been. Save the energy and creativity of your imagination for your future, for what God has for you ahead of you. And so regret is not sinful, but it will keep you from running well and finishing well. What about relationships? Um, how many of you know some of the relationships in your life may not necessarily be sinful in the sense that there's nothing illegal or immoral going on in those relationships, but they may be unhelpful. You, you may be in a relationship, maybe a romantic relationship or a business partnership that's just toxic maybe abusive, maybe unhelpful. And, and it's just keeping you from being all that God is calling you to be and doing all that God is calling you to do. And so, and so God would have you release that relationship and just let it go, right? Let it go, let it go. Let, let it go so that you can move forward into what it is that God has for you, right? So not everything in our lives is necessarily sinful, but it can be a burden and it can slow you down and keep you from running well. And so that could be things like procrastination and perfectionism and um, indifference and uh, habits and hurts and hang-ups. These things can become weights that we need to let go of. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 13 to 14, he said, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it yet, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on. Right, to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God 
through Christ Jesus is calling us. And here Paul is using his own little sporting metaphor and he's echoing the sentiment of the writer to the Hebrews. And he's saying, hey, listen, I haven't finished the race yet. I haven't, I haven't re- achieved perfection yet. But he said, I've come to realize this. If I'm going to run well and finish strong, there are some things I have got to let go. I've got to let go so that I can lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Hey, I love that thought. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus laid hold of me. He saved me. He redeemed me. He revealed himself to me. He sanctified me. He set me apart. He laid hold of me for a reason, for a purpose. And now it's my mission in life to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of me. And if you're sitting here today and you're a follower of Jesus and your faith and trust is in him, you need to know that he, like Paul, laid hold of you. He saved you. He redeemed you. He sanctified you. He revealed himself to you and he did it for a reason. And he did it for a purpose. And now your mission in life is to lay hold of that for which he laid hold of you. And to go after that. But Paul's saying, if I'm going to lay hold of the promises of God and the purpose of God for my life, I've got to be willing to let go. I've got to let go in order to lay hold. And I reckon as we stand here on the threshold of this brand new year, coming to the end of what was the most unusual and extraordinary year, I'm convinced in my heart that there are some things that God is calling you to let go. There are some things you've got to leave. There are some things you've got to bury in the sand before you cross over into 2021. And it might be a significant relationship. It might be a habit. It might be a thought pattern. It might be a behavior that you've allowed to develop in your life. Maybe it's something you picked up this year. Or maybe it's something you've been carrying for way too long. But he's encouraging you to lay it down. To let it go. So that you can lay hold of what he has for you in 2021. Can I get an amen? Amen. So that's the first thing. The writer to the Hebrew says, you've got to get rid of the excess baggage. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's time to get rid of the excess weight. <laughs> Some of you did that with much too enthusiasm, right? Too much enthusiasm and, and, and joy. All right. And then the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say the following. He says, all right, 12 verse 1, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Run with endurance. In other words, he's saying, keep on keeping on. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Persevere and persist in what you know to be good and right. And here, of course, he's acknowledging something I think we all know too well. And that is the truth that the life of faith, as wonderful as it is, can be weary to your soul. It can take a toll on your soul. Right? The life of faith and following Jesus, as glorious and wonderful as it is, can leave you feeling tired and exhausted and frustrated and disappointed. And as a result, there will be times when you're going to feel like quitting. Times when you're going to want to throw in the towel, when you're going to say, this is too much. I just don't know if I can carry on anymore, right? To be honest with you, I'm a little astounded at, at, at how, over the course of this year, how many people have, if not checked out of the faith race altogether, have certainly just checked out of community have just stopped coming to church, stopped connecting with other believers. It's almost like the whole COVID thing just became the excuse that they were looking for, right? And, 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 and so people get tired, people get weary, people get discouraged, and they lose the will to carry on. So absolutely, if you're going to run well and finish strong, and you're going to do the faith journey well, you need perseverance, you need endurance, you need persistence, right? And, and, and so that's why many athletes... When they compete in long-distance races, whether it's swimming or running or cycling, they do something called carbo-loading. How many of you heard of carbo-loading? All right? It's what you've been doing for the last three days. <laughs> okay? Carbo-loading. It's like carbohydrates are one of the primary 
you know, fuel sources of the body. And so what athletes will do is prior to a big race is they will just load up on carbohydrates for a certain period of time and a certain period before the race so that they've got enough energy and enough fuel for, for the race to go the distance. And, and so the question becomes, how do you carbo-load spiritually? We all know how to carbo-load physically. We've mastered the art of that. <laughs> but how do you carbo-load spiritually to make sure you have enough energy for this faith race so that you, like Paul, can get to the end of the race and say, hey, I fought a good fight. I run a good race. I finished my course. I'm not a statistic at the side of the road, right? How do you carbo-load spiritually? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us in, in verse 1 of Hebrews 12, right? And the key is fuel and focus. Fuel and focus. So the moment, the moment you run out of fuel, you stop, right? That's true if you're flying a plane, driving a car, or running a race. The moment you run out of fuel, you stop. Um, those of you who are V8 supercar, rev head, petrol head fans, where are you? Give me a wave if you're, yeah, yeah, okay, three of you. Um, you'll remember a couple of years ago, there was high drama, right, at Mount Panorama, Bathurst. Um, Jamie Wincup, who was the, the driver for um, Holden at the time, was out in front leading the race, and he and his, his pit crew made a bit of a miscalculation around, around their petrol management, and he ended up running out of petrol on the 161st lap, right, pulls over to the side of the road, and, and Chez Mostert, the Ford driver, comes flying past him, ends up winning the race, right, high drama, because when you run out of fuel, you stop. Right? That, that, is, that is true of every long-distance endurance marathon, and it's true of the faith life as well. So, so how do you refuel and refocus? Well, the, the writer to the Hebrews tells us how to do that. He says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. You see, the key to perseverance and endurance is to refuel and refocus. To refuel and refocus. If you want to run with perseverance and get to the end of this race with your faith intact, you have to constantly refuel and refocus. Because it's in refocusing that you refuel. The writer to the Hebrews says, how do we develop endurance? We do this by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That is a poetic or metaphoric way of saying make sure Jesus stays at the center of your inspiration and your motivation. Make sure Jesus stays at the center of your frame of reference. Make sure that Jesus is the fuel in the engine of your faith. If you are going to finish the race strong, if you are going to make it as a minister of the gospel, as a servant of God, as a follower of Jesus, then Jesus and His presence and His power and His validation and His affirmation has got to be the fuel that drives the engine of your faith. You cannot afford to run on any other fuel. You cannot afford to run on the fuel of your parents' approval or your friends' affirmation or your peers' acceptance and validation. You cannot run on the fuel of reward and applause and appreciation because that fuel is going to run out. And when it runs out, you will come to a halt. So the only fuel that is renewable and sustainable and inexhaustible is the fuel of His presence, His power, His love, and His validation. And the moment you lose sight of that, the moment you forget who it is you are doing this for, the moment you lose sight of whose opinion matters the most, 
The moment you take your eyes off Jesus and look at the situation around you and that colleague at work who got the promotion that you thought you were going to get or your neighbor's wife who's 20 years younger than yours and has all the right bumps in the right places or you look at that elder at church, that's, whatever the case may be, the, the moment you take your eyes off Jesus, you're going to feel yourself running out of fuel, right? Because it is He and He alone, right, who is the reason for why we are here and why we do what we do, right? It is He alone who is the reason that, that we get up at 6.30 in the morning to be here at church at 7.30 so that everyone can do church at 9. He is the reason that you keep opening up your door week after week and inviting that connect group in and making the tea and making the coffee and leading the Bible study so that people can grow in their faith and in their connection to one another. He is the reason you rock up every Sunday and keep serving in children's ministry and keep telling those Bible stories and keep changing those nappies and keep cleaning those carpets, right? He is the reason. He is the reason you get on the plane and fly 10,000 kilometers to the other side of the world to serve the poor and the needy. He is the reason. He is the reason we get up on Sunday and we skip the first session of day two of the Boxing Day test, right? To come and gather with God's people and worship. He is the reason. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason we worship. He's the reason we gather. He's the reason we serve. He's the reason we are here. And the moment you lose sight of that, you're going to find yourself running out of fuel. He must stay at the center of your fuel because he is the focal point of our faith. Let me finish with this, um, this story. Ben can come on up and, and get ready as we take uh, time to just worship God this morning and open our hearts to him. You know, a number of years ago, when I was youth pastoring back in South Africa, we had a group of youth leaders, and we decided to take them on a, on a, a trip down to a conference in Cape Town, which was down at the kind of southeast coast. And um, on one of the afternoons, we had some free time, and so we thought we'd take them on a boat trip out kind of into, into the harbor area and just around the coastline. And if you know anything about the South African coastline, it's, it's where two oceans meet, right? At Cape Point, the Atlantic and the Indian. And so it's pretty tempestuous, right? Um, the waters can get quite, quite rough there at the best of times. And so most of these kids uh, on our youth team had, had not spent a lot of time at the coast because we all lived inland in Johannesburg. And, and so they weren't seagoing people. <laughs> and so we put them on this boat and we went out just for a little trip around the harbor just to see the coastline. It's stunningly beautiful. And it wasn't a particularly bad day, but the swells were pretty high. And of course, as people not used to being on the water, it took about 10 minutes for all of them to, to be as sick as dogs. And most of them were hanging over the side of the boat feeding the fishes for, for the first 10 minutes. It was pretty awful, right? But one of the guys on our team was a, was a ship's captain. He had his, his, his boat license, his skipper's license. And he said, listen, guys, this is what you need to do. He said, you just need to plant your feet firmly and hold on to the side and fix your eyes on a, on a fixed focal point somewhere on the horizon. Just pick a tree or a rock or something stable and fix your eyes on that one thing. Because as you fix your eyes on that one focal point, you'll just feel your whole body settle. And, and your balance will come back and you'll start to feel well again. Well, it was incredible how well that worked. To just simply stand there, hold the side, and just fix your gaze on something immovable just settled everybody down. And friends, it's kind of like that with a life of faith, right? Jesus is the focal point of our faith. And we've got to keep Him at the center. Keep Him as the the center of our frame of reference and the primary source of our inspiration and motivation because when we do, everything inside of us will settle. Doesn't matter how tempestuous the wind and waves are around us, doesn't matter about the circumstance or the conditions that we are in, when Jesus is your focal point, 
and the frame of reference and the primary source of your inspiration and motivation, everything inside your inner world is going to settle down, calm down, and you're going to experience peace, and you're going to experience joy, and most of all, you are going to have the fuel to go far and to finish strong. And at the end of the day, that's ultimately what we want to see. Every single one of you crossing the finishing line, and like Paul's saying, I fought the good fight. I run a good race. I didn't throw in the towel. I didn't give up. I didn't walk away. I kept going. I kept going, and I have finished well. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind standing with me this morning. And what I really feel like we need to do today is just take a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do, and, and, and that is impart the grace that accompanies the truth. You know, something I love about God is that whenever He confronts us with truth, that truth is always accompanied by grace. Right? Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. And, and truth is there to make the demands, but grace is there to meet them. And so whenever God confronts us with truth, there's always a measure of grace available in the moment for us to respond to that truth. And I just sense today, as we, as we get ready to cross over into this new year, as we get ready to step out of what has been the most unusual and demanding and challenging of years, I just feel so strongly in my heart today that there are people here for whom God has been clearly addressing and speaking to, and God is calling you to let some things go. And I don't know what those things are, and I don't need to know what they are, but you do, and God does. And I just believe that there is an, an impartation of grace this morning to allow you to release, to give you the ability to respond to what it is God is asking you to do. And so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment, and just in this moment together, allow God by His Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And if through the course of this morning, God has been saying something very specific and clear to you, all I can encourage you to do is to hear the word of the Lord, is to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, because He has something for you. And, and, and if you will respond to that something, then you are going to experience His life, His liberty, His freedom, and His goodness. And so I want you just in these few moments to just open your heart to God. What is He asking you to let go? What is He asking you to release? Maybe there's a regret that you've been carrying in your heart for many years and it's caused you a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. I just sense God saying, today's your day. Like today is the day that you're going to step out of that regret and leave it behind once and for all, never to return to it again and to walk in the freedom that comes with releasing it. I feel that there are some people here today who have, who have got to end some relationships. Like there's, there's a relationship in your life that is significantly unhelpful and unhealthy. And you know it. You know it. And you know what you need to do about it. But you haven't had the courage to say, God, I'm actually going to bring that relationship to an end. And I'm going to stop pursuing it. And I'm going I'm to leave it behind. And I'm going to move on so that I can lay hold of what it is you have laid hold of me for. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a sin. Something you know to be contrary to the will of God. Whatever it is, I just know that God, by His Holy Spirit this morning, is ready to pour out grace that ushers in freedom and release. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're saying to me, yeah, that's me, I've, I've been hearing God speaking to me really clearly this morning about, about letting go and leaving behind some very specific weights and sins, then I'm, I'm going to ask you, just where you're standing, to just raise your hand up nice and high so I can see who it is I'm praying for. And uh, you keep your hand up and keep it raised as a sign to God, not to me, 
that you are responding right now to what it is He, by His Holy Spirit, has been saying to you. And there's something so significant about that raised hand. It's not magical. It's not mystical. That God often calls us to something demonstrable just as a way of solidifying and concretizing what it is that He is doing in us by His Spirit in the moment. And so, Father, I thank You right now for every hand raised. I thank You, God for the conversation that is going on inside the hearts of those who are reaching out to you right now, the conversation between them and your spirit. I thank you for the loving way in which you have spoken so clearly to them this morning. And I pray, loving Heavenly Father, that right now you would just envelop them in your grace and that you would empower them through that grace to once and for all let go and release to you, Father, whatever it is that you are convicting them about right now. Father, for those who have been battling and wrestling with some besetting sin that is keeping them from functioning well as a husband or a father or a mother or a wife, Father, I pray in Jesus' name for freedom and release right now. Pray, God, for forgiveness to be poured out over them. And I pray, Father, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are accepted in the Beloved, that they are your sons and daughters, that nothing will ever change that, Father. And that this morning you lavish your love upon them, God, and pour out your grace upon them. And I pray that there will be restoration and release and healing, Father. And that once and for all, the power of that sin will be broken from over their lives. And I pray, Father, that they'll be able to move freely, God. Move freely into all that you have prepared for them. Not held back anymore, Father, by that habit or by that thought pattern or by that behavior. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And God, for those who are laying down weights today, Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to simply put them over, Lord, into your hands, to cast all their cares upon you because you care for us. And I pray this morning, Father, there would be a defining moment, a line in the, in the sand, a watershed, Father, that they will look back on years from now and say, you know what, something shifted that day. That was the defining moment. That was the day I let go. That was the day I said, no more. That was the day I said, God, I'm putting this in your hands and I'm turning around and I'm going forward and I'm laying hold of all that you have for me. And I'm not going to allow that weight to slow me down anymore. And Father, I pray that they would experience your release and your peace right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And Father, we just collectively right now turn our hearts and our eyes and our attention to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you and honor you for your faithfulness to us over this year. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. We thank you for every perfect gift that has flown to us. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our sovereign, our King, our Lord, our leader. And today we want to celebrate you and worship you and give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory you deserve. We bring you back to the center of our lives. We make sure, Lord, you are at the center of our hearts. We place you on the throne of our lives. And we pray, Lord Jesus, continue to be our center, Lord. Be our strength, be our wisdom, be our inspiration and our motivation. Help us to never lose sight of you. And we will give you all the glory and all the praise in your precious, wonderful name. And if you can agree, say, Amen.